party friends you're listening to how the west was cast a podcast dedicated to the best of the western movie genre what the hell's the matter with you old man leave him alone he's gonna get us all killed I'm going to get rid of you. We're not getting rid of anybody. We're going to stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. We're finished. All of us. That was a scene from Sam Peckinpah's 1969 epic, The Wild Bunch. One of several films we'll be discussing today on how the West was cast. Hello. My name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, rather than focus on one single film this episode, we've decided to switch things up a bit. So you may have heard us mention Andrew's book, Still in the Saddle, about the Hollywood Westerns from 1969 to 1980. Well, today we'll find out why he wrote it and what the Western genre means to him. All that and more, coming up next. Okay, Andrew, so before we talk about your book, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your early introduction to the Western genre. Do you remember what the first Western movie you ever saw was? You know, I don't. Like many men our age, the Western wasn't a part of my youth, and that Westerns weren't a regular part of popular culture in the the 1980s when I came of age. So if I had to guess, it would probably be Dances with Wolves or Unforgiven. I don't know. But I didn't see those because they were Westerns or because I was interested in Westerns. I saw them because those were popular award-winning films that happened to come out in 1990 and 1992. Westerns just weren't part of my youth. I grew up in the superhero and science fiction saturated popular culture of the 1980s. So it wasn't really until I got to college that I was introduced to the Western properly. Mm -hmm. What about uh, Western TV shows? They were really prevalent when I was growing up. Did you watch any of those? That's a great point. Uh, No, we didn't. Um, (laughs) So I grew up in Uh, Calgary, Alberta, and my parents are originally from the Maritimes, which are the eastern provinces of Canada. So we uh, did watch um, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. I remember that being on the television as I was growing up. Uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. But nothing really beyond that. Um, We didn't have, I guess, extended cables. So whatever Westerns were on TNT uh, in the 1990s were not anything that I encountered until much later. Um, aside from maybe you know, something like Brave Star, my real, really my only exposure to the Western growing up would have been whatever I absorbed through osmosis from the popular culture of the day. So advertising, the Marlboro Man, uh, whatever parts of Brave Star uh, are connected to the Western, you know, the planet of New Texas, things like that. Yeah, I remember growing up with um, TV westerns were things I saw probably before I started seeing the films. There was like Mm. the Rifleman, they were all reruns from years before. The Rifleman was big, Bonanza, I liked that one because it was in color. Uh, (laughs) And Little House on the Prairie was another big one. 
Yeah. And then I remember my dad introducing me at one point when I was way too young. He said, you're going to need to see this movie. And he put on The Wild Bunch. And that was <laughs> devastating. That's um, a right passage. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's, um, I mean, I'm a big James Bond fan, and those were introduced to me by my father, and the Westerns were as well. Uh, I remember seeing Outlaw Josie Wales at the drive-in. Mm. Uh, I remember the whole family went on opening weekend to Pale Rider when that opened. Right. So, so there were a few there, but um, you, you're right. The, I think our age, I'm probably a little older, um, but even my age, they just weren't everywhere like they were in the 60s and, and before yeah. that. You know, it's funny you should mention reruns because I can, I can remember that there were reruns of Westerns on television and Little House in the Prairie, for example. But, you know, if you were to ask me the reruns that I remember watching the most on television, it would be Star Trek. I remember Star Trek was on television almost every day when I came home from school. So even that suggests that we'd been... We're slowly moving on to the, the next genre, let's say. The Rifleman. Starring Chuck Connors. So if you didn't come to them till later... How did your interest in Westerns evolve over time? Were there specific films that really changed the way you saw the genre and inspired you to take it up as a, a study? I can remember beginning to watch Westerns consistently when I went to college. So I have an undergraduate degree in cinema studies from the University of Toronto. And anyone who takes really any film class, you're bound to encounter at least one Western. And then the more film classes you take, the more Westerns you're going to see. In my sophomore year, I took a class called Genre Narration, which was about just that, uh, how we can understand the ways that films go about telling stories, and then also how genres tell certain stories over and over again. So there was a unit in the Western, and that's probably the first real concentrated block of Westerns that I remember seeing. And if I had to point to a single moment in my life when I knew that the Western was going to be a significant part of it, it would actually be a screening in that class. The professor would occasionally organize supplementary screenings in the late afternoons. So this was a Friday afternoon in a big auditorium that we had on campus. And one of the supplementary screenings was of Once Upon a Time in the West. And this was at a time when it was actually difficult to get your hands on the film. You could see it in VHS, but odds are it would be edited, and of, of course it would be formatted to fit the, the then 4x3 uh, aspect ratio television screen. So somehow the professor had got a hold of a European Laserdisc copy of Once Upon a Time in the West. So uncut, as close as you were going to get to seeing it in 1968 at, at this particular point. So I remember a few of us, maybe maybe five Students stayed uh, after class to watch this film. And by the time it was over, I think I might have been the only one left because it is a long movie. But as I, as I sat there in the front row watching it, I was just sort of overcome with this sensation. It, it really is a kind of epiphanic moment in my life where I realized this is it. And I don't, I don't write about Italian Westerns a lot. It's not the focus of my expertise. So it's not as though this film set me down the path to studying Italian Westerns. But when I think back on it, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West really is a kind of 
encyclopedia of the Western. I mean, this is something that Christopher Frayling, the, the great scholar of Leone and Italian Westerns, has written about, that almost everything that was the Western is somehow crammed into Once Upon a Time in the West. So it, it is a kind of rapid indoctrination into the genre, I suppose. So I remember seeing that and thinking, yeah, this was it. The Railroad. The Boom Towns. A new life. And the promised land. Once upon a time. So off the top of your head, what are some of the things that you really love the most about the genre? One thing that a number of critics of the Western have, have pointed to, and I think it's true, is that for whatever reason, and maybe I'll suggest some of these reasons in a minute, many of our greatest filmmakers have done their best work in the Western. Uh, Jim Kitzes, in a book called Horizons West, calls the, the Western a, a remarkably expressive canvas. And I think that's as apt a description as any for what the, uh, what, what the genre is. So for some reason, there's something about the Western that has enabled our, our, our best filmmakers. And you know, Ford, of course, is at the forefront, but you know, arguably also Hawks and Men and Bedeker and e even ones we, we don't talk about in the same breath as those four men, perhaps um, people like John Sturges or Delmore Daves or Andre de Toff. They've, they've just been able to do their best work in that genre. So I think there's, there's something about the artistry that's appealing. And then beyond that, just the, the remarkable range of stories that filmmakers have been able to tell within what is a, really a very limited set of parameters. If you think about the Western, it's set between the end of the Civil War and the turn of the century. Maybe we can push that back a little bit further to the 1860s if we want to. And then geographically, you're limited by west of the Mississippi, usually east of the Rockies. Maybe we can push it to California. But even still, that is a remarkable set of strictures within which to craft narratives. Um, I think well, you'll, be, you'll be able to, to speak to this because you're the screenwriter. But there, there's something, I think, about having some kind of limitations imposed on you that forces you to be more creative. And I can't think of a genre that is more restrictive than the Western. And I think those sort of limited pressures, the idea that there was a limited range of pieces that you could play with actually forced filmmakers to be incredibly creative. So that probably produced what are some of the greatest films ever. And I, that certainly resonates with me, whether it's you know watching older Westerns or even films today. What about some of the things that you're less crazy about, about the genre, problems that are inherent in it? Hmm. Well, I'd say that I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the B-Western. Um, I disagree with a lot of superficial criticism of the Western that would say that it is you know, repetitive or that all Westerns are the same. Um, with respect to the A-Western, at least, I think there's a, a quite a bit of variety. And, and that may be true to a certain degree with the B-Western, but when you think about the industrial parameters under which most of those films were made. I, I just have never been a, a, a great enthusiast of the B-Western in the way that many fans of the Western are. So I'm not too, not too keen about that. Um, when it comes to some of the common criticisms of the Western that we hear even today, the idea that the Western was racist or sexist or helped to propagate 
a nefarious, duplicitous ideology upon the American people. I don't think Westerns were, by and large, any more racist or sexist than films of any other genre that happened to be made at any point in time. In fact, I think the degree to which the Western is racist and sexist has, in fact, been overstated. I think you only need to look at the degree to which the, the Western has appealed to people of all races of both sexes, uh, not only now, but also throughout history, to, to see that those criticisms don't really hold up. So are there cringeworthy things when I watch earlier Westerns? Absolutely. But is it any more cringeworthy than anything we've seen in the past in other genres? I don't think so. These days, Westerns are considered a bit of an acquired taste at best, and it's not always easy to share your appreciation of them with friends and family. Uh, is that something you've experienced? Absolutely. I think that the Western, despite what I just said, still has a lot of what we might call ideological baggage. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, I think for a lot of the 1970s and 80s and 90s, the Western became a kind of ideological punching bag that if you wanted to demonstrate what was wrong or had been wrong with American popular culture, it was very easy to come up with examples from the Western. And I can remember this happening in an anthropology class I took in my undergraduate. The class had nothing to do with film or, or popular culture. But when it came to picking an example of racism, there was a clip from, I believe, Broken Arrow, which kind of demonstrates the, the lack of understanding that the instructor had about that film. But nevertheless, I, I think that that idea persists, and we certainly see that in some of the uh, takes you see about the Western nowadays. Um, I also think that a lot of these ideas just linger in, in popular culture. So even if you've never seen a Western, you have some ideas about it. And if you think about the Western phrases that are still part of our vernacular today, calling somebody a cowboy or describing a situation as the Wild West, those are never good things anymore. So I think you do have that uh, hurdle to get over. I think that's just generally speaking. Uh, and I also think there's a, a bit of a hurdle within the academy. I think until fairly recently, there was maybe some reluctance to take the Western too seriously, though that may be changing. Uh, and as for the genre being acquired taste, absolutely. You're just not likely to encounter a Western. I mean, it, maybe one or two will play in cinemas every year. Maybe fewer, actually. You could have known Westerns coming to your movie theaters. And the types of Westerns that that play in cinemas are not necessarily to everyone's taste. So you kind of have to actively seek out Westerns if you're interested in learning more about them. And I suppose for the average person, you know, given some of the ideas that are out there, why would you? So jumping ahead to your book, Still in the Saddle, why did you decide to focus specifically on the period between 1969 and 1980? So for the best reason uh, to write anything, which is you disagree what other people have written. Um, you know, one thing that I remind my students whenever I'm teaching any class that focuses on film history, that film history isn't singular. We're actually looking at film histories. And a, a couple of film historians who have, have written a, a commonly um, assigned textbook called Film History, this is uh, David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson, make a point in the introduction 
um, to this book that we're, we're not talking about a single history. We're actually talking about a set of competing historical arguments and that you respond to what other people have said and you try to offer your own, hopefully more persuasive argument about not only what happened, but why it happened and why it matters. So uh, as somebody who had watched a lot of Westerns and then also had begun to focus in on John Wayne, it became apparent to me that a lot of what had been written about the Western in this period in particular, from the late 1960s to the end of the 1970s, was not so much wrong as, as incomplete. It was telling what I thought was a, a one-sided story that was based on a very limited number of films that very few people actually saw at the time. So I, I had that narrative, this revisionist narrative, the idea that filmmakers like Peckinpah and Arthur Penn and others began to explode the Western by holding up some of its problems to the to the light by using the genre to inveigh against the violence, racism, and greed of the frontier experience as well as allegorize contemporary events, that this was somehow new and it was these new filmmakers who were doing it and in the process they led to the Western's destruction through this kind of self-consciousness. So there was that narrative, but then there's also the narrative that John Wayne remains not only the Westerns, but one of American cinema's most popular stars throughout this decade, and that many of his films are as, if not more popular than the films of these you know, Hollywood Renaissance auteurs. So Still in the Saddle was my attempt to try to flesh out our understanding of that period beyond a, a simple narrative based on a, a select number of critically acclaimed films. It has been called the most controversial motion picture of its time. It is the most talked about and written about film of the decade. Now, from the director of The Deer Hunter, United Artists presents Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. So two major films bookend the time period that Still in the Saddle deals with, one being The Wild Bunch in 1969 and the other Heaven's Gate in 1980. So without giving away your entire argument, uh, can you talk about the importance of those two films as they relate to the subject of your book? So for the, the common revisionist narrative of the Western, these films are, as I say, a, a really tidy bookmark. You have The Wild Bunch on the one hand, which is this violent jolt that brings the genre to life at the start of the period. And then you have Heaven's Gate, this lavish, self-indulgent uh, Marxist Western uh, epic that not only destroys the Western, but brings United Artists to an end. So, you know, the studio founded by Chaplin and Pickford and Griffith in 1919. So it's a, it's a very convenient narrative. And that narrative also matches to other stories that we've told ourselves about both American cinema and culture. So those years, 69 to 80, map on very neatly to what we sometimes call the Hollywood Renaissance or the New Hollywood. So this is the moment when American cinema begins to produce something that approaches an American art film, something like the European New Waves of the 19 of earlier in the 1960s. So films like The Graduate, films like Five Easy Pieces, um, films like Bonnie and Clyde, and, and those, of course, also come to an end with Heaven's Gate. And then there's a sort of a, a larger narrative about what America was like in the 1970s, that this was a, a time of, of conflict, 
a time of, um, I, I guess we would say, wars both at home and abroad, fought on many fronts, a time of questioning traditional American values, a crisis of confidence, in the, in the words of Jimmy Carter. So it forms a, a very, as I said, neat historical block, a period of time that we've used to tell ourselves certain stories. The The point that I make in the book, though, is that I can just as easily look at those same years and I can say, no, 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 that at least with respect to the Western, this is a period that begins with John Wayne's Oscar-winning triumph in True Grit and concludes with a film about Jesse James that is number one at the box office the week it comes out, and that's The Long Riders. Now, the truth, of course, is somewhere in between the two, but that is the, the broader, the wider picture that I try to fill in in the book. They were nine men. They were four families of brothers. They rode together from Missouri to Minnesota and from Texas to Tennessee. They were the most famous outlaw heroes of the West. They were known as the Long Riders. This is their story, and it's as close to the truth as legends can ever be. The book deals specifically with the Hollywood westerns of the 70s and doesn't really delve in, as you've said, to the European westerns that were really exploding during that period. Is it really possible to talk about one without the other at all? That's a great question, and a number of people have asked me that over the years, particularly with respect to to Serge Leone. Now, if you if you watch American westerns of the the nineteen seventies, it's clear that Leone's films were, were beginning to have a certain degree of influence. But I argue that their influence has been overstated. That we we tend to forget that when Italian westerns came over, they weren't viewed with the same kind of respect. They didn't have the same cachet that they have today. Um, so. It is, I think, fair to talk about one without the other, that even with respect to the Italian Western, the Italian Western begins to die out as a trend even before the, the Hollywood Western does. If we look at the Italian Western, it's really concentrated into a period that is sort of the late 60s and really just, just beginning to get into the 1970s, after which it begins to die out itself. So I think a fuller picture of the Western, yes, would have to include the Italian Western, and I do make reference to it at, at certain points especially when it comes to how Italian Westerns were um, in, invoking earlier American Westerns and then American Westerns would then invoke Italian Westerns. I do talk about that a little bit. But the the main Western, I guess, the main form of the genre was still the American Western at this point. And that's also the main form that most critics have, have been responding to. And that was where I wanted to stake out my territory. On November 29th, 1864... A unit of cavalry numbering 900 men surrounded a peaceful Cheyenne village at Sand Creek, Colorado. The Indians raised the American flag and a white flag of surrender. They're coming out, sir. What? What's that? I think it's Spotted Wolf. My God, sir, he's got a flag of truce. Yes, sir, it's a white flag. Nonsense. Will you see, please, I told you, Lieutenant, give the order. Sir? Why give the order? Yes, sir. Open fire! Nevertheless, Ready? the cavalry attacked, slaughtering 700 Indians. Hi! More than half of whom were women and children. Troop! At the trot! 
Birch! The factual account of that massacre is now documented in a motion picture. Ralph Nelson's Soldier Blue. One of my favorite chapters in the book deals with the depiction of Indians in the Westerns of the 1970s. It's such a fascinating subject. And your analysis of the film Soldier Blue in particular is incredibly interesting. So for those who haven't read it yet, can you offer a snapshot of that section in the book? Sure. So that's the second chapter of the book, which is called Hugger of Trees, Scalper of Whites, Opposing Stereotypes in the Pro-Indian Western. And as the title suggests, I look at the different Indian stereotypes that were circulating, not only in Western filmmaking, but also in American popular culture at that particular moment in time. Now, as, as for Soldier Blue, that is one of the most famous Indian Westerns that uh, comes out in the 1970s. Um, it comes out at the same time as two other films, Little Big Man and A Man Called Horace. And together, the three of those films are held to symbolize a break in Western movie history when we move from the stereotype representations of the past to a somewhat more sophisticated, nuanced, complex, and historically accurate depiction of American Indians going forward. Now, that, of course, is a gross oversimplification. Of course, there are films from much earlier that offer uh, very complex uh, portrayals of American Indian culture. And I try to point out in the chapter many of the the problems with a lot of these so-called pro-Indian films of the 70s, particularly how stereotypes from the, the bad old days uh, in, endure in problematic ways. Uh, Soldier Blue is an, is an interesting film, though. I use it as a kind of case study uh, because that film, more than any of the other Indian films and perhaps more than any other Western of the period, explicitly made the case that it was an allegory for contemporary political events. So it creates an analog between the massacre of, of Cheyenne and Arapaho at Sand Creek by the U.S. Cavalry with the massacre uh, at My Lai of, of Vietnamese civilians at the hands of American servicemen. The advertising for the film made this explicitly clear. The film's director, Ralph Nelson, in interviews was very clear that this is exactly what it was trying to do. And the film's climactic massacre uh, deliberately stages uh, particular shots and actions to mirror the images of my life that by that point American audiences were very familiar with. Uh, they had seen them on their television screens. They were published in Life magazine. So this film forcefully does what many would say most Westerns of the time did, is, is use the Western to allegorize its contemporary, uh, contemporary events, as if to say that you know, this frontier ideology was bad then, and, and look what it's led to now. Uh, the funny thing about Soldier Blue, as I, I point out in the book, is it's, it's actually not a very good movie. It, it's actually quite a, a bad movie. And it's it's bad in interesting ways, though, uh, particularly how it is in for 90 percent of the film is, in fact, incredibly uh, conventional, even cliche. And it's really only the concluding you know, 15 minutes or so that uh, kind of you know, shatter this kind of you know, this, this candy coated Western world and offer what even by today's standards are, are some really. Uh, graphic depictions of barbaric acts here, you know, perpetrated by uh, the, the the U.S. cavalry. So I say that you know, the Soldier Blue is a film that 
doesn't so much have your reputation that it's a film whose reputation has your reputation. I think it's kind of an unfortunate one because it it kind of colors what other films at the time were, were doing. And, you know, oftentimes Soldier Blue and Little Big Man are linked together and Little Big Man is a superior film in many ways. But Soldier Blue is it's kind of an, an an odd one in American history. So I think it's you know it's reputation, let's say, exceeds what it actually does as a film. One of the things that I really appreciated about your book is the attention you pay to John Wayne's late career westerns, which have sort of flown under the radar for what feels like a very long time. So in your opinion, why don't great films like The Cowboys or Big Jake get the attention that they deserve? Well, because they're John Wayne westerns. I think what you've just said could be applied to many films that John Wayne made, perhaps all of the films that John Wayne made, with the exception of the films that he made with John Ford. I think his his later films have been particularly neglected, though, because of the political persona that he began to take on in the late 1960s, which tarnished in the eyes of many his his later films. Um, there's also, I suppose, a, a lot of some criticism that by the time he got to the end of his career, he was just remaking the same films over and over again. So uh, The Shootist was really just The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance again. Big Jake was just The Searchers again. Rio Lobo was El Dorado, which was Rio Bravo and and so on and so forth. So there's a number of reasons that we could point to for their comparative critical neglect. Uh, the filmmakers he he worked with too. He was working with Andrew V. McLaughlin and Burt Kennedy, who are not Sam Peckinpah or Robert Altman, I guess we might say. But it, it really all comes back to Wayne and the somewhat contested space that he occupies in film history. Let's say being the most famous movie star ever, on the one hand, but also being a, a controversial figure to this day, which I, I think is. Uh, a reputation that's unfortunate in the sense that it, it has overshadowed not only some of his films, but also more generally the, the fact that he, he was a very good actor. Fain and his gang raided the McCandles ranch and kidnapped little Jake McCandles. They held him for one million dollars in ransom. They weren't afraid of the army and they weren't afraid of the Texas Rangers. And they thought his grandfather, Big Jake McCandles, was dead. He wasn't. One of the things that your book does very well is chronicle the changing depiction of real-life figures like Billy the Kid and Jesse James and Wyatt Earp that happened in the 70s. Can you talk about some of the ways that these legendary heroes and outlaws almost switch sides during that period of time? I think that's an apt description that many of these heroes become villains. My favorite example of this, and the film's made no secret of this, uh, is a film from uh, 1971 called Doc, which is yet another retelling of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and the gunfight at the OK Corral. But the poster says, for the last 90 years, these three people have been heroes until now. And, and that is what many Westerns at the time set out to do, to show that these people that American popular culture had valorized, had lionized for nearly a century, were in fact not just ordinary people with faults, but in fact downright villainous. So many films clearly set out to do this. So Doc would be a great example. Dirty Little Billy shows that Billy the Kid was a filthy idiot. 
uh, Altman's Buffalo Bill and the Indians or Sitting Bull's history lesson pulls the rug out from Buffalo Bill Cody, showing him to be the creation of a dime novelist who is trapped within a imaginary world that he is unable to recognize the boundaries of. I mean, the list really does go on and on and on. So there are some you know, really kind of interesting things that these films do to show us that these people were not so much heroes as villains. A point I make in the book, though, is that the degree to which this was something new is is overstated. If you were to go from My Darling Clementine and then go immediately to Doc, you, you would see a kind of striking difference between the two. But if you had been someone who had been watching the Western for 10 or 20 or even 30 years, this is not a stark change. This is something that the genre would have been leading up to, that these legends have been under constant revision. And that one problem with some of these narratives is it it can actually distort our perception of the past. So one point that I make in the book, drawing on a scholar named Ted Gallagher, is that when you go back and look at a film like My Darling Clementine, it's not as though Wyatt Earp is the virtuous cowboy that we might imagine him to be. You know, we need to remember that his first act of quote-unquote heroism is, you know, incapacitating a rowdy, drunken Indian character, and then he admonishes the townspeople for serving liquor to Indians. Now, that's a line that Fonda would regret saying for the rest of his career, but there is a kind of, you know, moral uprightness, a kind of obstinate, a kind of almost authoritarian nature in the Wyatt Earp of the 1940s that we, we kind of lose when we compare him to the the, you know, uh, sociopathic Wyatt Earp from the 1970s who is obsessed with his firearm to an unhealthy degree and so on. So so it's absolutely true that a lot of these films set to tell us that these people were, were villains, that, you know, Billy the Kid was a punk and so on and so forth. But this is something that genres have, the, the, the Western genre had always been doing. These legends have been under constant revision. Now, this is going to sound a little crazy, but when I read that chapter in your book about the changing depiction of famous outlaws in the 70s, literally the first thing I thought of was the 1973 episode of The Brady Bunch called Bobby's Hero. Do you know that episode? I do not. Do tell. Yeah, you've got to look into this one. Um, in the Well, Bobby's the youngest boy in the Brady family, and in that episode, he learns that his hero, Jesse James, was actually a stone-cold killer. Uh, it's an unusually dark episode of a TV show that wasn't known for tackling serious issues. He Actually, the kid in the, in the show turns in a school paper on Jesse James and what a hero he was and how fabulous he was. So his concerned teacher calls the parents and warns them that your kid is becoming obsessed with a Western murderer. Oh, that's amazing. It's so cool. And later in the episode, his parents want to dissuade him from this myth of Jesse James. So they show him, a. they sit around the TV and they watch a Jesse James movie that's being broadcast on TV to convince him that his hero is actually a bad guy. But because it's on TV... All of the violence has been cut out of the film by the censors, so he looks really heroic in the film. Uh, and it has the exact opposite effect on him until they bring in a historian uh, who comes in and has written a book on Jesse James because his own father had been killed by him. 
So Bobby ends up having this nightmare where all the Bradys are shot to death by Jesse James on a train. And we see them all being gunned down. It's nightmarish. It's so freaky. That is definitely going in the revised edition of Still in the Saddle. Uh, Wow, that that would actually be a perfect example of a lot of what's happening in the 1970s. I mean, there's a there's a general diminution in the status of conventional heroes at that point, and a lot of that does draw from uh, a trend in historical studies to revisit a lot of the the myths and legends of American history. So it's entirely in keeping with the times for that sort of activity to be taking place. So that that it's almost a, a perfect snapshot. You know, what's interesting, though, and I I write about this in the book, and others have pointed this out, that when Hollywood first started to attempt to make films about Jesse James in the teens and 20s, uh, audience members actually objected. They would write into the studios, you know, admonishing filmmakers for glamorizing the life of this, you know, as you said, stone-cold killer, because... At that period of time, people were alive who had actually either encountered James or who had relatives or parents or grandparents who had been killed by him. So it's really with uh, Henry King's 1939 film, uh, Jesse James with Tyrone Power, that we get the, the more modern conception of what of who Jesse James was. There's obviously dime novels before that that glamorize him, but in terms of really shaping all of popular culture, it's that moment. And it's, it's interesting that we've kind of gone away from that too. So it, I suppose we should remember that that Jesse James maybe only existed in a broad sense for, I don't know, I guess maybe only 30 years before history stepped in uh, with the aid of uh, popular culture and began to correct the record. I think that that's, it's interesting too, though, that the Brady Bunch, yeah, I mean that that's around the same time as the the so-called rural purge and network television when they begin to cancel not only all of the westerns but also you know Green Acres and Hee Haw and all of that in favor of shows like the Brady Bunch. So there's some kind of metatextual thing there where the Brady Bunch is complicit in killing off the western. I'm going to roll with that. Your book garnered some really wonderful reviews, and by my way of thinking, perhaps none was more impressive than the blurb you received from author David Morell. Now, for anyone who doesn't know that name, Morell is the creator of John Rambo, the character made famous in the movie First Blood. That had to be quite a thrill knowing you to have someone of Morell's stature praise your work the way he did. Uh, what can you tell me about that endorsement? That was, yeah, That what can I say? That was amazing. Mr. Morell is, he's an amazing writer. We, we do know him for writing the novel First Blood, but he, he has written you know, popular works of fiction in almost every genre. He, uh, he's also written some comic books you know, for Marvel. Uh, he is also, he has almost an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, films and, and in particular Western film history. And he uh, kindly sent me one of his books, um, Stars in My Eyes, which is a series of essays about uh, films and film stars. And I sent him a copy of my book. And he ended up reviewing it in Roundup, which is uh, Western Writers of America's uh, monthly publication, and said some uh, very nice things about it, which which means a lot. I don't know how many people know this, but uh, Morell actually started out you know, as a lowly academic, actually. So I think he, he was originally going to be a professor. But then he you know, decided to give up the, the glamour and fame and wealth that comes with being an academic. To, to try his hand at lowly fiction writing. 
So obviously the wrong choice in, in that sense. So your book also talks about the idea that the Western genre was more or less replaced by the science fiction films in the late 70s and into the 80s. Can you elaborate on that argument as well? Sure. I think that's a common way of understanding uh, what happened to the Western, the idea that it, it, it not only died out, but it was replaced by something else in our popular culture that was simply more relevant, that had a greater resonance with our increasingly – I don't know, technologically mediated existence or, or something along the lines, something along those lines. So this is, you know, the idea that the Western gave way to science fiction. And there's, there's, you know, there, there's something to that. If you, if you think about, you know, the, the children of the 1950s who began to trade in their coonskin caps for ray guns, that that is a, a, a process that began at that particular moment in time. And so by the time the the children of the 1950s and 60s are adults watching movies in the 1960s and 70s. They, you know, they've already given up the Western. So there's a kind of demographic component to that explanation. So I'm not saying that that's entirely wrong in the book, but I think it's it's overly simplistic. You know, these claims that the the Western somehow even morphed into science fiction is probably the most common one. And you know, people will point to. Films like Star Wars, um, where you have a character like Han Solo, whose posturing is reminiscent of Western characters. And, and of course, we have Star Trek, which Gene Roddenberry famously described as wagon train to the stars or wagon train to space, depending on where where you read it. So so that argument is out there. But to me, it's 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 a little bit too straightforward and also feeds into what I think is one of the most unfortunate tendencies in writing about or even thinking about the Western, and that's this desire to not want to concede that the Western had kind of died out but instead had morphed into something else. And so this or that is is in fact really covertly, secretly a Western, and so the Western is alive and well in – the the films of Dirty Harry or in you know or in Star Wars or something along those lines. Now, finally, for people listening to this podcast who've seen most of the major films that you cover in the book, like the uh, Josie Wales and Little Big Man and films like that, the major titles, can you maybe recommend a few deeper cuts that are worth tracking down? Uh, personal favorites that don't get mentioned as often as they as they should. Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. One film I mentioned earlier, that's a, a so-called Indian Western from the period, would be Olzana's Raid with Burt Lancaster. It's a, a really interesting reworking of The Searchers in many respects that offers us a much more even-handed and challenging depiction of the relationship between American Indians, in this case the Apache, and white civilization, you know, mainly the U.S. cavalry. Uh, that's available in, in Blu-ray right now. There's a, a great Blu-ray disc of it. For a long time, it was hard to find. And when you could find it, it was edited because there are some, you know, even today, fairly shocking scenes of, of barbarity. So that would be one deep cut on the Indian front. If we went to the John Wayne period, uh, the film that I, I always recommend is Big Jake. I think that's a that's a great picture. Actually, you know, very contemporary in, in some interesting ways. I don't know if it's if it's forgotten, but if we go back to 69, uh, Support Your Local Sheriff is uh, a, a great film. It's hilarious. You know, it's it's perhaps Burt Kennedy's most successful film 
as a director. So that's James Garner and, and what is you know, maybe the, the best Western parody that's ever been done, even better than Blazing Saddles. Let's put that out there. It's, let's say it's, it's a gentler, gentler film, but um, it, that's a great one that I think we, we, we tend to overlook. Uh, the Culpeper Cattle Company uh, is one that I write about in the book uh, in a chapter about heroes that I, th I think is really worth seeing as well. And is also you know, actually quite sophisticated in its engagement with, with Western movie history. I think it's a movie that kind of gets it. And then if we go to the end of the period, um, The Long Riders is a film that I think pe more people should see. It's, it's actually quite interesting in many ways. One that's kind of from out, outside of this period, let's say. But I think people should go and give The Legend of the Lone Ranger from 1981 uh, another shot. They definitely should. I just watched it last week. Oh, good. Okay. John Barry's score. Oh, it's oh beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that that's a kind of infamous film. And, you know, we, we could do a whole podcast about that one, actually. Let's pencil that in. But I, I think people want to – I've showed that to people on occasion, and I think they're surprised. Um, anyway, so those those would be some, some of my recommendations kind of chapter by chapter through the book. Although his reputation was legendary, his identity remained a secret. For he rode to fame on a white stallion with his trusted Indian friend and a black mask across his face. I want you to take me to Cavendish. Now, the truth is told and the mask is lifted in the legend of the Lone Ranger. Rated PG. Well, that about wraps things up for this episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you.